friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, we're sharing an episode from our companion podcast, live at the National Constitution Center. In this episode, Robert Post, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School, explores his highly anticipated volumes from the Oliver Wendell Holmes Devise History of the Supreme Court, the Taft Court, Making Law for a Divided Nation, 1921 to 1930. Robert Post explores the history of the Taft Court and the contrasting constitutional approaches among its justices, including Chief Justice Taft, Louis Brandeis, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and the infamous James McReynolds. It was an honor to host this conversation with Robert Post, and I can't wait to share it with you. Enjoy the show. Friends, I'm so excited and honored tonight to convene a great scholar of constitutional law, to celebrate a great achievement in American constitutional law, and that is the publication of the Holmes Devise volume, and it's called The Taft Court, Making Law for a Divided Nation. It's written by Robert Post, a Sterling Professor of Law at Yale Law School, uh, where he also served as uh, Yale's dean with great distinction. Uh, Robert Post has written and edited many pathbreaking books, which I warmly recommend to you, including Citizens Divided, A Constitutional Theory of Campaign Finance Reform, Democracy, Expertise, and Academic Freedom, such a relevant book right now, First Amendment Jurisprudence for the Modern State, For the Common Good, Principles of American Academic Freedom, and Prejudicial Appearances, The Logic of American Anti-Discrimination Law. And since 1988, he has been working on the volume that we're here to discuss today, which is the result of a bequest by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes to the federal government. Holmes was such a patriot that he entrusted his legacy to the government, which decided to create a series of volumes on the history of the court. Uh, this one, like most, has been a long time in the making. It's just a path-breaking work. It is so exciting to read, and I was telling Robert Post how how thrilled I was to learn about the Taft Court from 1921 to 1930 in a new light. Um, and and it's, it's just uh, wonderful to be able to be in conversation with Robert. Uh, Robert Post, I'm going to begin first by congratulating you on this great achievement and then asking you, what is it about the Holmes device? It's uh, America's greatest scholars of constitutional law have been given this daunting home homework assignment. Some have died. Others have gone mad. Others have given it up and uh, passed on the baton to another scholar, but you persevered. You, you've you been working on it since 1988. Tell us about the Holmes device and what it was like to complete this one. Well, I was really the, the last person over the finish line. This volume, which um, I completed, which is on the Taft Court, when William Howard Taft was Chief Justice from 1921 to 1930, it was originally given to a great constitutional scholar, Alexander Bickel, in 1958. And uh, he worked on it for many, many, many years. And then he died. He didn't finish it. And then it was given to another great constitutional scholar, Robert Cover, uh, who was my teacher. And uh, Robert Cover worked on it for many years. And then he died. And then it was offered to me. 
and I tripled my life insurance. <laughs> and I took it on. And um, I mean, I must say, when I when I took this volume, I thought uh, Holmes Devise um, histories are apportioned uh, by Chief Justice. Period. And um, um, and they're given to you. You don't pick your Chief Justice. And I thought when I had drawn the Taft Court, I had drawn the short straw. Because uh, in modern times, very few people know many decisions from the 1920s from the Taft Court. Uh, and it took me many, many, many years to sort of get into it and to um, learn about it. it. It has a plethora of archival sources. Taft himself has 600,000 letters in the Library of Congress. He would every week write you know, 30, 40, 50 letters. Um, and so it's a wonderful historical source. It's overwhelming historical source. And then, of course, one has the writings and the letters of Brandeis and Holmes and Harlan Stone, great figures in the history of the court. Um, but I must say it took, it took the Trump presidency really to... Um, spur me to finish this book because there are many, many similarities between the Supreme Court now and the Supreme Court in the 1920s. Uh, when Harding became president in 1920, um, he was uh, he, uh, he was elected on a platform of restoring the country to normalcy after the innovations of World War I, and that meant turning it to the right. And uh, he conceived um, the project of changing the court, to, of packing the court, basically, to turn it to the right. So in 15 months, he appoints four justices, decisively changing the nature of the Supreme Court. And these justices had an agenda, and the agenda was to return the court uh, to what the jurisprudence had been before World War One. And uh, they had to do this in the context of a decade which was intensely polarized. The 1920s... Um, was the time you might remember prohibition. And prohibition was extremely controversial. It was a time of lawlessness and divisiveness. It was so divisive that in 1920, uh, the Congress, for the one and only time in the history of the country, uh, did not reapportion itself based on a census. And they didn't do that because the census would have given power to the cities, and the cities were wet. And the dry powers that predominated in Congress, the prohibitionists, didn't want to give any power to the wet. So the division between dry and wet was the decisive uh, division in the 1920s. And so the challenge before the court was how do you articulate law in a way that's legitimate in a country that is intensely polarized? And that's very similar to what we have um, today. Superb. What a... Uh, relevant and, and gripping introduction to the similarities and differences with today. And as you say, the archival research is amazing. You sat and you found a locked trunk in the Supreme Court that had the, the, the decisional records that were supposed to have been destroyed, and you bring them to life in such a remarkable way. Well, in your preface, which is so clear and galvanizing, you set out Four distinct narratives about the nature and purpose of constitutional law visible within the Taft Court. It's so clear. You, you associate each one with a, a different justice, and I'll just put them on the table and ask you to expand by laying them on the table, and then we'll dig into each one. You say, one narrative sought to ground the authority of the Constitution in shared social customs and traditions. You associate that with James McReynolds. A second, in a common commitment to material prosperity, that's Chief Justice Taft. Third, in the collective political project of perfecting democracy, that's our mutual hero, Justice Brandeis, who's behind me uh, uh, 
uh, here now, and the fourth asserted the authority of the law, including constitutional law, arising from society's need to establish the orderly processes of adjustment among groups engaged in an almost existential competition for survival. That's Justice Holmes. Tell us a little more about those narratives. So, um, as I said, the, the, the challenge of the court was, how do you articulate a form of law that's legitimate? And law acquires its legitimacy by being um, packed into a narrative. And the narrative is what appeals to people. And when your decisions unfold a narrative with which uh, they can identify, that's what gives law its legitimacy. And uh, today we have different forms of narratives, but in many of these narratives go back um, to the 1920s. So the most important narrative and the one that's almost invisible to uh, many lawyers today and most people today um, was to understand constitutional law as the product of custom and tradition. So uh, the the constitutional, the, the meaning of the constitution was the same as the meaning of what we would call the common law. It was what people were used to. It was what people expected. And um, today you see um, that kind of law in, for example, tort law. So tort, tort law will say, my privacy is protected and you can't disclose documents that would be unreasonably offensive. So when the law uses terms like unreasonably, what it's appealing to is people's instinctive sense of what's right and wrong, what's customary, what, what a jury would find um, in, in common sense to be right and wrong. And that was what constitutional law grounded itself in. And judges were conceived to be the experts of the customs of the people. This is where Harlan Stone began. And this was the dominant jurisprudence in the United States, say in the 1890s, the customs and usages of the people. And this was profoundly anti-legislative. So um, uh, Congress or state legislatures would pass laws and courts would say, well, this contradicts custom in the following way and dress that up as interpreting the constitution. And so it put the judge in a position of superiority over legislation. And the judge who was, I would say, the most consistently loyal to this jurisprudence, which already by the 20s was becoming a little archaic, uh, a little old-fashioned, was uh, James R. McReynolds, who is you know, known today as uh, you know, one of the great bigots on the history of the Supreme Court, came from the South. Um, but he, he deplored almost everything that was a change in existing customs and traditions. And the, the opposite of that view was Oliver Wendell Holmes. Oliver Wendell Holmes had gone through the Civil War. He'd been wounded three times. And he understood that at the basis of society was not a unified custom, were not unified views and beliefs, but rather division and polarization and struggle. That's what he understood to be at the basis of American society. And he confirmed that um, in the, well, they, in the time they called the industrial wars between labor and capital. There were huge strikes, you know, uh, throughout the late 19th century, all the way up to the 1930s, um, where labor and capital were at war with each other. And Holmes looked at that and says, that's the essence of society. It's a struggle for, for survival. It's very Darwinian. And what is the function of law in that? The function of law was to, to the extent possible, paper over these fundamental divisions by providing for orderly processes of change. And the only orderly organ of change that Holmes regarded as the mouthpiece, this was his word, the mouthpiece of the state, was the legislature, because you could vote. And as the dominant, what he called the dominant opinion changed, so should the law. And therefore, the loyalty of the judge 
lay to legislation, not to custom and tradition, because there was no unifying custom and tradition in Holmes's account of America. So between Holmes and McReynolds, you have these polar opposite views of what American society was, leads to a polar opposite set of jurisprudence. And of course, um, Holmes invents what we now call positivism, which is the basis of a good uh, deal of modern jurisprudence. Modern originalism, for example, stems directly from Holmesian positivism. It's a form of the, what uh, Larry Solom calls the fixation thesis, that law is a fact, and uh, that it was settled by these orderly processes, and you can know it. Between these two poles, there were two other much more normative accounts of what American society was about. One was embodied by um, Chief Justice Taft, but I, if, I, I would say justices like Pierce Butler and George Sutherland also participated very strongly in this, as did, you know, it was common sense really in the period. And the idea was that the function of the American Constitution was to create prosperity for the American people that the constitution was there to protect the property rights which allowed for the accumulation of capital which was the meaning of civilization and so you know many critics have said about holmes and his court that it was formalistic that they were involved in abstract rules that nothing could be further from the truth what they what they did was uh, it was like uh, the law and economics movement they privileged economics over politics and they said the function of constitutional law is to um, protect those rights which allow us to be prosperous. And in the 1920s, you know, the um, the dizzy 20s where everyone is uh, competing to make money in the stock market, this was a very attractive philosophy. And um, it allowed them to strike down many forms of regulation because in their view, it interfered with the incentives which were necessary to create capital. Um, uh, uh, prosperity rested on entrepreneurial activity, which required what's called freedom of contract. And so the Taft Court, from this point of view, revived what is known as Lochnerism. Lochnerism says um, that one's freedom in the market is to be protected constitutionally, and ju judges could second guess any legislation which imposed uh, um, uh, controls on social and economic life. So that was a third point of view. And the last point of view was articulated only by the man over your right shoulder, um, Louis Brandeis. Um, and Brandeis had a view. He said, what is America? America is not about prosperity. And America is not about custom and tradition. America is about democracy. America is about the project of governing ourselves. And therefore, um, when you see legislation it's to be respected, like Holmes said, legislation was to be respected, but it was not to be respected um, simply because it was the dominant opinion. It was to be respected because it was the product of self-governance of the people themselves. So legislation was to be respected because democracy was to be respected. And we take that for granted now. Almost all constitutional lawyers think of the presumption of constitutionality, which legislation should have, as stemming from its democratic warrant that really didn't exist as a rationale until Brandeis invents it during his time on the court and most especially during the 1920s. And uh, this was different than Holmes because in a, a very famous case called Myers versus Nebraska, this is a case in which Nebraska banned the teaching of German. It was a product of the World War I opposition to the Germans. You know, Americas went kind of crazy during World War I. They were 100% Americanism, so they had to ban German because they were at war with Germany. And the court has to consider the constitutionality of this. 
Holmes, a good progressive, says we have to defer to the legislature because, you know, we have to create national unity. So he dissents. And the majority's opinion is written by McReynolds, who is often viewed as the extreme right wing of the court. But like Brandeis, he believed that it was customary to uh, learn German. So the legislature really had no business interfering with the independence of Americans who wanted to learn it. And Brandeis dissents. Brandeis joins McReynolds and differs from Holmes because he believes that the right to an education is necessary for democracy. So he does it for an entirely different reason and a reason that would be very um, sympathetic to moderns, so different from Holmes. And like, um, like Taft, he believed in property, but he didn't believe that the purpose of property was to create material prosperity. He thought that the purpose of property was to create democratic citizens. So the regulations of property always had to be judged against what it did for your independence as a democratic citizen, which is a very different test um, than that employed by Sutherland and Taft. Superb. What a what a riveting account of the four strains on the Taft court. And let's now delve into each of them a bit more. So let's start with the first, the traditional conservative constitutionalist view that you associated with Justice McReynolds. Uh, the idea is that constitutional law is customary, it's common law. In some ways, this is the, the hardest for modern audiences to grasp because, as you just told us, it both includes in allegiance to libertarian ideas of uh, the right to teach your kids as you please, um, which uh, cases that led up to Roe v. Wade um, and which attracted uh, Justice Brandeis, but also led, as you put it, to a splintering of judicial conservatism on the court during this period where the McReynolds block, along with Justices Sutherland and Butler, during Prohibition thinks their obligation is to maintain legal legitimacy by uh, ameliorating the, the law of prohibition by acknowledging customary social values, whereas the Taft wing believes the defiance of prohibition threatens the legal order and, and has to be overridden by law enforcement. So help us understand that first wing of customary conservatism uh, as associated with James McReynolds. So um, we we have lost, we think of prohibition as, you know, flappers and people going into uh, um, speakeasies and uh, sneaking drinks and like that. Um, prohibition was this enormous, enormous crisis in, in the American state. It was the first great federal intervention into people's lives since Reconstruction. So the project of the federal government suddenly is to stop everybody in the country from drinking and manufacturing and consuming alcohol. And they had no equipment to do this um, at all. And um, the, the prohibition ran against every, ran against the customs of everybody in big cities. And you have, you know, you remember um, in Babbitt, uh, Sinclair Lewis, you know, uh, he's making, uh, Babbitt is making drinks for his friends. Does anyone want to break the law? Um, the law breaking was uh, pervasive. Uh, prohibition turned ethnic working classes against the Republican Party. It would prepare the way for Franklin Roosevelt. It was, and um, as a wonderful observation, the those who enshrined prohibition in the Constitution thought that they would make uh, prohibition as strong as the Constitution. But what it did is it made uh, the Constitution as weak as prohibition. So prohibition is an act of positive law. It's enshrined in the Constitution. It's uh, passed more quickly than any amendment in the history of the Constitution, um, more solidly, you know. 
Um, and, um, and all of a sudden, no one obeys it. And they say, we're going to nullify prohibition. And, uh, and the prohibition is saying, how can you nullify the Constitution? We will have no law. To which the response was, well, you in the South who promoted prohibition are nullifying the 15th Amendment. You're not allowing African-Americans to vote. What do you mean? No one can, uh, you can't nullify. And it promotes this great jurisprudential crisis of what is law? Is it law because it's been ratified or is it law because it corresponds with the customs and traditions and what people view as legitimate and reasonable in their lives? And prohibition um, creates this enormous controversy over this subject. And, and, and interestingly enough, on the Supreme Court, it divides the conservative block into two halves. So we have um, uh, people like uh, McReynolds and Butler and Sutherland, who deeply are committed to the idea that law to be legitimate has to be reasonable. It has to correspond to what people understand to be legitimate. And so they're very anti-prohibition. If you actually look at the, um, the voting patterns, you can see that these conservative justices do not join the court um, nearly as much on prohibition cases as they do on non-prohibition cases. And in fact, prohibition cases are much more, tend to be much more divided, much more 5-4. The court at this time, you know, 80, 84% of its decisions are unanimous. So it's a very, it's a court that's following different customs and traditions altogether in terms of its, in terms of dissent. But there were a lot of dissents. Only about 73% of its decisions are unanimous in the context of prohibition. So you get a block of conservatives who are saying we have to ameliorate um, the rigors of prohibition in order for prohibition itself to be legitimate. And they are contradicted by Holmes, who's a positivist, who says, okay, the people want it to be extreme. I have to be extreme with the people. And uh, Taft um, thinks that the revolt of the elites against prohibition undermines the rule of law itself. So the only way to sustain the legal order is to enforce prohibition with with augmented um, severity. So Taft and Vandervander and Sanford, um, they, in the context of prohibition, author decisions that look just like Holmesian positivism. And in fact, one way to understand what happens in the New Deal is the positivism, the nationalism. Prohibition is also national. And it's very contrary to the traditions of American federalism, which is to, de to decentralize decision making about liquor and other uh, regulations of consumption to the states. And in this context, these conservatives are nationalists and they're positivists. And this prepares the way for many of the decisions in the New Deal when positivism begins to take over as a dominant thing. It's prepared for by these conservatives. And when the prohibition is repealed, um, conservative positivism dies as a tradition and it doesn't come back until William Rehnquist. William Rehnquist is an example of a modern conservative positivist as is, for example, Scalia. And it reemerges um, only you know, 50, 60 years later um, after the repeal of prohibition on the conservative side. The most interesting um, figure here, I think, is Brandeis. Brandeis, on the one hand, respects prohibition and wants to enforce it because the people wanted it. But on the other hand, he has a very strong sense that law, which is perceived to be illegitimate, um, can't really uh, serve as law. Uh, prohibition splits progressives in half. Half progressives like the social workers support it. And many say this is destroying the legitimacy of the federal government, which will never again pass uh, 
a progressive agenda. So we have to we have to get rid of prohibition. So progressives were quite divided, as was Brandeis. And the way in which he, in the end, in a case like Olmsted, in his dissent in Olmsted, um, seeks to ameliorate it, is he says, he says it about um, the Fourth Amendment, that the Fourth Amendment protects privacy. And how do you know privacy? By the very norms of customs and traditions which the traditionalists were using to uh, limit economic regulations. And so in by by he's, uh, Brandeis is driven to that position and that form of liberalism that that resists positive state regulation in the name of dignity, in the name of um, of traditions doesn't reemerge on the left until decisions like Griswold in the 1960s. Wow, such a, a powerful reminder of Brandeis using this common law methodology to gloss the meaning of the Fourth Amendment in an age of new technologies, and all of them unanimously converging around substantive due process rights in Myers and Pierce, the right to pursue happiness. I must ask this, um, Justice Thomas in the Dobbs case suggested that substantive due process is completely inconsistent with original understanding. Do, Do the opinions in Myers and Pierce suggest otherwise that various wings of the Taft court all embraced it? Um, I would say um, everyone uh, in in the 1920s embraced one form or another. The question is how extreme it had to be. I mean, even this Lochner dissent, um, uh, 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 Holmes leaves room for uh, a a form of substantive due process if if it is outrageous enough. But um, the idea of the modern originalist like Thomas, um, that would have been inconceivable in the 20s. Nobody thought of the Constitution the way Thomas thinks of it now. No one thought of it as a simple fact. Um, They thought of it in terms of these larger narratives and in terms of the legitimation of law itself. And they always um, thought back to how law was being legitimated rather than um, some method or another method. That's not what they would think about um, in the in the first place. And I think it, it's fair to say that um, most of the justices in the 20s, Holmes least of all, Holmes was the most positivistic, but um, with the exception of Holmes, um, they understood that American citizenship had a moral content and one had to be independent to be immoral. And so they strove to create a constitutional law that would protect the independence of Americans uh, in, uh, and they differed in what they understood substantively that independence to consist in. So um, for McReynolds, it consisted in traditional uh, traditional rights to marry, to raise kids, to be the paterfamilias in your family. Um, for Sutherland and for Taft, it consisted very much in entrepreneurial liberty. Um, you know, none of this is cast as an originalist. It's understanding what do you need to be in order to be an American citizen. And for um, for Brandeis, it's very much um, you have to be politically empowered, and you can't be politically empowered if you're in need, if you're in necessity, if you're in such want that you have no leisure, if you have no education, if you have no right to speak, etc. The goals of Taft and Brandeis. Um, as you put it, are, uh, in the case of Taft, economic prosperity and material well-being and the protection of property rights and, and Brandeis, the promotion of democracy and the perfection of the individual. Uh, Taft's hero is Alexander Hamilton, who he thinks, along with James Marshall, is the greatest constructive statesman, and Brandeis is, is Jefferson. And, and those goals, economic prosperity as opposed to 
democracy and individual liberty are, are uh, sound like Hamilton and Jefferson. What, what do you what, what do you make of the suggestion that the Taft vision is Hamiltonian and the Brandeis is Jeffersonian? Well, there's something very Hamiltonian about that because they want to construct an economy. Um, but you know, there's the economy is one dimension. Other dimensions have to do with empowerment, for example. So Brandeis, unlike Jefferson, wanted a positive state. He wanted a state that would empower citizens. Jefferson wanted to leave the state out as much as he could, except for, you know, creating state universities. You know, he had some, some active forms of state, but for the most part, he wanted a state that was minimal, that didn't intervene. Whereas Brandeis is saying, look, uh, under modern conditions, the state has to intervene to protect the powerless or they will be oppressed by private economic power. I mean, Brandeis' central image of the United States was you have large trusts who are oppressing the massive population who are workers. They're destroying the unions by which workers can defend themselves. They are depriving them of a living and of a life. And therefore, they're depriving them of the ability to be um, democratic sovereigns. That was his central image. That would be very alien to, to Jefferson um, as an image. And, and uh, say more about the national power versus states rights dimension. The Taft wing is generally nationalistic, uh, especially in its approach to prohibition. And Taft famously dissents in the Atkins versus Children's Hospital case, where the majority, in an opinion by Justice Sutherland, uh, strikes down maximum hour laws by the District of Columbia. And Taft dissents on federalism grounds and wants to defer to national authority. Is, is Taft generally uh, nationalistic in his outlook? And how does that square into his willingness to invalidate economic regulations? You know, it's so interesting because uh, nationalism is a very complicated subject um, uh, in the early years of the 20th century, in the late years of the 19th century. So the Republican Party platform after the Civil War is we want to create a national market and we want to protect a national market. So the Supreme Court um, was traditionally an agent of nationalism. It used dormant, what's called dormant commerce clause doctrine to strike down state regulations, which in the Supreme Court's view in, impinged on the national market. Um, and so they created uh, in, in um, what's called diversity jurisdiction. That is, people can come to federal court if they're citizens of different states. And that meant national corporations were always seeking uh, to bring their lawsuits against them into a federal court. And the, the, the federal courts created what's called general federal common law to um, protect national corporations and the national market. And these differed very much from state law. So there was um, national corporations, which were, of course, highly Republican, always wanted uh, federal courts to have more jurisdiction because they created um, uh, uh, a jurisprudence which was very friendly to the national market. Uh, on the other hand, the Democratic Party, which was the party of the South, was very states' rights, and it uh, was opposed to nationalism. But think of TR as a you know characteristic Republican. And then along comes World War One. World War One. Um, it really has not been theorized in the history of American constitutional law, but it had a massive, massive, massive impact on. Um, the way in which the court and the way in which the country um, regarded uh, economic regulation and regarded the federal government in particular. So World War I comes along. It's the country's first encounter, really, with total war. 
uh, with international total war. And the, uh, uh, in 1912, you know, it was intensely controversial every time Congress passes a regulatory statute because it should be in the states and it's laissez-faire and it was a time of Lochner. And along comes World War One, and um, the federal government takes over the railroads, it takes over the telegraphs, it takes over the telephones, it sets prices for food, it sets prices for energy, it regulates what you can, can and cannot consume, it recognizes unions, it sets labor prices, it uh, it creates arbitration for um, um, for labor uh, uh, disputes. I mean, total control of the economy more than has ever existed uh, since then, actually. And it's a, it's a total shock to everyone. Everyone recognizes that you cannot win a total war in the 20th century unless unless the federal government can completely control the economy, because that's what Germany is doing, because war in the 20th century is a question of national production. And the war ends, and as uh, Luchtenberg, a famous historian, put it, Woodrow Wilson ends his administration in a riot of reaction. He dissolves every federal agency which had been controlling every aspect of the economy, leading to the huge inflation and the huge crisis of 1919. But um, it's because the country was horrified at what it had done to itself. And that leads to a massive election of Harding and the theme of normalcy. And the court is now to, to erase the impact of World War One, but that had a lot of implications for federalism too. So the Taft Court is actually quite um, discombobulated on the question of federalism when it comes to say national congressional power. On the one hand, um, it understands, for example, um, it takes the lesson of World War One that the, the railroads are a national transportation system and they can only be regulated at the national level. It had never existed before. Before that, the ICC was there basically to protect shippers, uh, farmers and states. And afterwards, the, the ICC, the Internet Interstate Commerce Commission, is um, tasked with this with a revolutionary statute, the Transportation Act of 1920, with creating an efficient national transportation system. So antitrust considerations with respect to railroads are put to one side, and the function of the ICC is to keep rates high so the railroads have enough capital to create an adequate system. And the whole of the rate structure of the railroad system in the United States is now in the hands of the ICC. This couldn't have happened before World War One. Before World War One. Um, America did not keep statistics, uh, economic statistics, um, uh, um, with, uh, it didn't have enough information to do this form of regulation. Suddenly in World War I, when it had transformed the economy into a war economy, um, economists flocked to Washington, D.C. You know, st statisticians were hired by the federal government for the first time. And this is the first time we created a National Statistics Bureau. It's, we created economic econometric knowledge to um, that would set prices in, uh, in the United States and direct production to war. It's this expertise which is now applied to the ICC after, after the war. Couldn't have happened. And the Taft Court is fully in support of that because they understand that the railroad system is a national system. On the other hand, they pass a statute which um, bans uh, child labor. And they pass a statute which taxes child labor. And the Taft Court strikes it down. Uh, on the grounds that, you know, we're a federalist country and this is beyond the taxing power and the, and the interstate commerce power of the federal government. Totally inconsistent views. And um, reconciling these views is actually an interesting project in the book. And, and it has a lot to do with what sort of property is being regulated. And 
and things like that. It's speculative. But what you can see is there's really intense confusion about national versus um, state in the years in the 1920s as the country is assimilating and responding to and uh, and reacting against the extreme nationalism of, of World War One. That's so interesting, and it helps me understand the complexity of the division among the conservatives on this national versus state power. I must ask, because I'm so eager to understand the answer, about uh, a period before you write, and that is the, re- the post-Reconstruction era. Why was it that mostly Republican justices after the Civil War divided on the states' rights national power question in decisions like the Slaughterhouse case, refused to apply the Bill of Rights against the states, and that only Justice Harlan was the consistent nationalist, but the others are striking down all sorts of federal laws about slavery. I'm trying to understand this intra-Republican division on the Supreme Court for this long period on the question of national power. Well, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the federal government was not a major player in the lives of people before the Civil War. And the federal and the Civil War had a similar effect to World War I. It was this massive eruption of national power. And um, as a result of that, it creates a very confused wake, just like World War I creates a very confused wake. And you see people going in different directions. One consistent theme of the Republican Supreme Court after it is, um, is the creation of a national market and the creation of the Dormant Commerce Clause, with some exceptions. Um, you might call them ideological exceptions. So, for example, the, um, uh, the court rules that insurance is not, is not commerce. So um, the federal government can't regulate insurance and the insurance markets become balkanized in states because there can be no national regulation of them. Um, and, uh, and it's not until the Taft court that they begin to get access to federal court um, because it's viewed as, a, as commerce, et cetera. Taft court brings all of this back in. It, it completes the project of, of nationalization. On the other hand, there's you know, reactions. We don't want too strong a federal government. And that, you know, that leads to the, uh, well, among other things, the emasculation of the 14th and 15th Amendments, and it leads to um, slaughterhouse, and it leads to the court not wanting too great a federal presence and too great a federal judicial presence in the everyday lives, in the domestic lives, as opposed to the market. Fascinating. And that uh, leads me to ask about how the Taft Court completed that project of economic nationalization. You say that contrary to the claims of some historians, the Taft Court did not seek to use the 14th Amendment to prohibit class legislation. The war had ratified and sanctified the public interest. The constitutional question was not so much whether state regulation was captured for the benefits of particular classes as to whether government management was so intrusive that it compromised the necessary independence of Americans. Tell us more about that vision and how it defined the economic cases. Well, I, you have to understand the way the, the way that property was understood in the 1920s. Property, uh, we now make a very sharp distinction between personal rights and property rights. And th- this is a legacy of the New Deal and of the, uh, the repudiation of Lochnerism. But uh, in the 1920s and, and before that, uh, people would not have sharply distinguished property from uh, personal rights. They, they would consider the right to participate in the market uh, and the right to accumulate property as personal to the person and as necessary to build character in the person. Property was a form of discipline. There are many Taft Court decisions in which they're just, you know, the question of Native American property, which was, uh, you know, could you 
tax them? Could you not tax them? And it's always theorized in terms of the character building properties of, of owning property. And that's the way it was understood. So it was a fusion of being moral and entrepreneurial. It was, it was at the intersection of these two things, property. So you get a case like a Meyer or Pierce, which today are substantive due process, and they have to do with uh, dignity and pr- religious rights, and free exercise. At that time, you see them cited indiscriminately in economic cases and in um, and in uh, what we would now call uh, personal rights cases. And you, you see uh, unanimity um, among all the Taft Court justices in a case like uh, Wolf Packing uh, um, versus the Industrial Court of Kansas, which is a massively important case that is totally lost to the modern imagination. So uh, what what you had in 1919 were, were terrific strikes. More people were on strikes in the year 1919 than ever before or since. The whole economy, the whole steel industry was on strike. There was a, a general strike in Seattle. Um, the Bolshevik Revolution had just happened in Russia. People were terrified of labor unrest. Uh, and and the, 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 the public begins to say, well, if there's a strike, uh, uh, who's going to protect the public if suddenly people don't have coal uh, because there's a train strike and I can't get coal and I'm going to freeze and I can't cook? Um, who's going to protect the public when the trains go on strike and, you know, and the produce can't get to the cities? Um, so the public becomes... The arbiter. It's not no longer are you regulating for one class or another. You're regulating in the public interest, and it had to be the public interest. Remember, World War One was all this regulation in the public interest. So the opposition is now between the public interest and uh, my ability to to strike. And so Kansas said, "Enough of this." They had a Rooseveltian governor named Allen, and uh, he said, we're not going to uh, be at the sufferance of labor and capital. Um, We're going to create a Kansas court of industrial relations, and we're going to have forced arbitration. So people have to work for the wages that we adjudicate, but they'll have to pay the wages that we adjudicate. And um, this question of whether you can have forced arbitration, and labor hated it, capital hated it. Brandeis hated it because he thought it was inconsistent with independent persons to have to work for the state at forced wages. Uh, And it was a unanimous decision, striking it down, for example. And it shows, you know, what people had in common. And now we have to unpack how they differed, but they had this in common, that the public interest had limits. When you think about how the Taft Court cemented the nationalism, um, a case like Terrell versus Burke, which we've lost touch with, we now speak about the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. We say that Congress cannot give a benefit and attach to it as a condition that you waive a constitutional right. The Taft Court held for the first time that states could not impose on corporations a waiver of the right to go into federal court. So insurance companies, as I said, were not viewed as interstate commerce. And so they were stuck in state court. And when a state would allow a foreign insurance company in, they would put as a condition that they waive any right to bring any suit or to remove any suit to federal court. So they didn't get access to this general federal common law. Taft comes in, he says, the first thing we have to do is to rationalize the national market by expanding general federal common law by by saying it's unconstitutional for the states to force um, this waiver of your constitutional right to have access to federal courts. So the Taft Court invents the idea of unconstitutional conditions. It does it to cement the national market. Wow. 
All right, well, that brings us to our hero, Justice Brandeis, and you so powerfully argue that he was distinctive and unique on the court in a vision of perfecting the democratic citizen and his great faith in democracy to uh, improve society and allow people to reach their potential. Uh, You'd note that he did not get this uh, from Jefferson. Where where might he have gotten it and, and give us Uh, some of the leading cases in which Brandeis uh, uh, spells out this vision of democracy. Well, you know, it's very interesting because um, he he, he writes almost no memorable court opinions during the 1920s. Taft gives him, he creates the rudiments of administrative law. He's, Taft calls him in the intra-court correspondence, the Pope of interstate commerce, (laughs) because he gave them all the ICC cases, very complex no one knew how to handle this new ICC and how to figure out what the administrative law, there was no administrative law at the time. And Brandeis invents it, but it's very um, rudimentary by modern standards. So we've lost all these decisions, but that's where he chiefly wrote opinions and everything he does is in a dissent. Uh, um, so um, for example, uh, one of the most, in, uh, one of the things I should say is that in a way in which we've lost track of it, the war between labor and capital was central um, to American identity in uh, the first 30 years, 40 years of the 20th century, and especially in the 20s, because in 1919, it exploded in the worst kind of industrial warfare. And and so people's view of uh, labor and capital was extremely important. And when Taft became chief justice in 1921, he offered... Um, for a quartet of four extremely important decisions uh, that infuriated labor and led labor to make a resume. The AFL resolved to end judicial review. And the Follett picks this up in his 1924 campaign. He gets support from the AFL to end a constitutional amendment to end judicial review. And um, these four decisions included striking down the Child Labor Tax Act, and it included decisions about when people can pick it and how they can pick it, and it included uh, decisions about the application of the antitrust law to labor, um, etc. But the the most interesting of these is a case called Truex. So Arizona, um, well, I should go back and say, when the Clayton Act was enacted in 1914, uh, the Clayton Act said uh, basically that federal courts couldn't issue injunctions to intervene into labor disputes because the labor injunction was killing strikes. Uh, uh, Federal courts were very uh, um, favorable toward capital. And so when there was a strike, they would go into court and they would enjoin the court. So labor mobilized and under the Wilson administration, which was very friendly to labor, they passed the Clayton Act, which seemed to say that they couldn't issue an injunction. Well, um, it turns out it was very Weasley, the words, and the Supreme Court holds in 1920 that, yes, uh, actually didn't mean what it says. And they can issue injunctions. And in fact, not only uh, can they issue injunctions, but they can issue more and better injunctions than they could before the Clayton Act. So the scene is set for an explosion of federal injunctions and extreme hostility between the labor movement and the Supreme Court of the United States. And these decisions are, are exacerbating this tension. So uh, as a, as a, before the, the Clayton Act, but like the Clayton Act, uh, uh, Arizona passes a law saying that its courts cannot issue injunctions. Um, and so they can't intervene in labor disputes to protect the property, meaning the freedom of contract of the employer. 
And this decision comes to the Supreme Court of the United States during Taft's first term. It comes in December. He His first term starts in September of 21. This decision is in December of 1921. And Taft holds, this is a five to four decision, Taft holds that, first of all, it violates um, due process to ban any remedy for the property of the employer, which is a really interesting decision because it implies that the Constitution gives affirmative rights. If you ban all remedy, then you've lost the constitutional rights. It's exactly opposite the modern court, which holds you have only negative rights. You have rights to prevent government from doing something. Here, Taft is holding the government has to intervene to protect your right. Otherwise, it's unconstitutional. So it's one of the few decisions that have held that there's an affirmative constitutional right to a remedy um, to, to have the federal government intervene to protect you. So that's one holding. But then he says, suppose that Arizona only banned injunctions as a remedy. They allowed other remedies like damages. Um, He said that would be a protection of equal protection law um, because it doesn't treat uh, other disputes between employers and other people the same as it treats disputes between employers and employees. It was a very bizarre argument, but actually it kind of anticipates modern narrow tailoring. It basically basically argued it was under-inclusive. No one at the time understood that argument. They viewed it as like this crazy pro- capital decision by a conservative court. Brandeis um, dissents in that, and it's one of the most profound dissents that he writes ever. And in this dissent, he says, well, um, how are we to understand whether it's constitutional or not? He says the problem with constitutional, um, with constitutionally setting aside uh, of legislation like Arizona's legislation is you're setting aside the results of democratic deliberation. And when you have democratic deliberation to intervene in the market, you're always trading off values. The value of, for example, um, allowing labor to make a living versus uh, um, versus the right of the entrepreneur. This is a balance. This is a matter of judgment, says Brandeis. And in matters of judgment, we have to trust the people themselves because judgments always have many solutions. Judgments, John Rawls would now call that the burden of judgment. And Brandeis is articulating this idea that you, you never really know an answer, so you have to trust the people um, in doing it. And and to know that you have to um, you have to have respect for the outcome of the democratic process, and you have to have experimentation. You have to allow them to try different things. Otherwise, we'll never know what the solution to this is. This is a very profound understanding of the role of judicial review, which I think most moderns just take that for granted. What I just said to you. No one had ever said it before, Brandeis, in this dissent. Remarkable. All right. Well, uh, we have just uh, seven minutes left, and it's time to talk about free speech. Uh, Holmes and Brandeis, as is well known, uh, write uh, some of the great free speech dissents of American history in this period. Help us understand, uh, first of all, where Brandeis got his famous test in Whitney, that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. Jefferson had flagged it in the Virginia Declaration, but Brandeis refines it more explicitly than anyone else. And because it's in the news, and our listeners would like to know, I'm sure, did did the college presidents get it right in their testimony before Congress when they said that uh, calls for genocide uh, would have to uh, be evaluated on a contextual basis in order to meet Brandeis's Whitney standard or not? 
So the first thing we should say about the presidents is that they were articulating a test. I'm sure they're not articulating the Whitney test. They were articulating a test of a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio. And Brandenburg versus Ohio says you cannot penalize the advocacy of illegal conduct like genocide unless it's imminently likely to happen and you intend for it imminently likely to happen. And so the presidents were saying it's contextual in exactly the way that um, the, the First Amendment requires it to be understood to be contextual. It is not, a, it is, a, you cannot penalize the advocacy of, geno- of genocide if you're in public discourse, if you're in a newspaper, or if you're on a street corner, etc. And the irony of what just happened to those presidents is that conservatives in Congress have been calling upon universities uh, to, uh, to comply strictly with the First Amendment. First Amendment rights, free speech rights. And that's exactly what the presidents were doing when they gave those answers. And now you see um, these same politicians ragging on them for not complying with the first, for complying with the First Amendment. And they shouldn't, they should have a different standard um, in a university. Now, I myself believe that universities are not governed by the First Amendment, they're governed by academic freedom because universities are communities and in, and in no sense can a, a community survive if you have the rigorous standards of the First Amendment. So a, a, an easy way to see that is if there's a young, you know, crazy professor in the astronomy department and he writes an article saying the moon is made of blue cheese. And he writes that and um, the government can't penalize him for that, even though it's wrong. But the university can deny him tenure. Universities make content-based judgments all the time. They make it for students, that's called examinations. They make it for professors, that's called tenure and hiring and grant giving. Um, We govern ourselves according to very different logic um, than the First Amendment. And um, all along, we do that. And so that is the irony of what happened to um, to those poor presidents. But Brandeis in Whitney is extremely clear. Um, that free speech is a product of um, governance. It's about citizens governing themselves. So it pertains to speech about what, in that opinion, he calls political truth. It's about how we should govern ourselves. It's not about all speech. It's about the speech um, about uh, speech in which we attempt to make government responsive um, to us. And this test of imminency, which he got, uh, which he articulates in there, he actually gets from a Holmes descent in a case called Abrams, which was in November of 1919. So the imminency requirement comes from Holmes. But what's distinctive about Brandeis, in that opinion, Holmes had talked epistemologically about the marketplace of ideas, about we can never get to truth unless we allow everything. And so like the wrong idea, that truth is what everybody believes. The last place you'd look for truth is the internet to know whether vaccines cause you know, cause you to have an implant in your brain, you glow in the dark, you would not look to what everybody believes. That's not a good criterion of truth, but that's what Holmes says. Brandeis modifies Holmes and says, it's not about truth. It's about politics. It's about how we live in a democracy where we have to govern ourselves and we're responsible for govern ourselves. And therefore speech, he says, is an obligation. So what forms of speech are an obligation? The forms of speech in which we participate in the governance of ourselves. And that's not every form of speech. There's only some forms of speech. When I go to my doctor, I'm not participating in self-governance. So it's not going to be governed by Brandeisian standards. Thomas presently makes that mistake. He says, he says we want to have a marketplace of ideas between physicians and their patients. 
well, I mean, I hope this doctor doesn't abide by that. I hope his doctor abides by malpractice standards so that he has to say competent medical advice and not as governed by the marketplace of ideas. Um, and Brandeis knew that full well. And he articulates that beautifully in Whitney. By the way, something you might not know, in Whitney, in Gitlow, right before Whitney, um, the court applies the First Amendment to the states for the first time. And when I got access to the docket books of, um, of, of Stone, I discovered for the first time, it was Van de Vanter in conference who said it should apply to the states. That's where it comes from. Wow. Those are, the docket books were amazing. It was so, so exciting to read about that. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. Um, I'm loath to close, of course, like Lincoln, but, um, yeah, and, and please uh, sum up as you think best, but I'll just ask you what the Taft Court can teach us about the court today. I think the Taft Court for me became a model of people who really passionately believed in a consistent jurisprudence arguing with each other. And uh, what I loved about the court, came to really love about these people, even though I disagreed with many of their views, was their integrity, was their, was their passion. Um, and when you see a clash between people who genuinely believe and have thought through to the bottom what they believe in, that's a remarkable thing. That's an inspiring thing. And I hope our court can live up to that, you know, that it can it can have the integrity and the depth to have a jurisprudential vision that is coherent all the way down to the ground and articulate that and inspire us with different visions of the Constitution. Here, here, beautifully said. Uh, Professor Robert Post, the Holmes device is an act of national service. Justice Holmes felt it his duty to the Union to leave his treasure to the federal government, and the greatest legal historians in American history have been selected to work on this important project. Um, it is an honor to interview you about your pathbreaking work. Congratulations for having discharged your responsibility so nobly. Thank you for educating us, and friends, thank you for joining in. You're so lucky to hear Robert Post talk about his great home device. And now, of course, I want you to continue your education by reading the book. Order it as soon as it's out, and read and learn and grow together. Robert, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Jeff. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Yara Durese, Cooper Smith, Samson Mastashare. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs starting next year and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. Recommend the show to friends and colleagues, donate for the holidays, and always continue your learning about the Constitution by tuning in to the NCC. Are We the People podcast, live at America's Town Hall, all the great educational resources. It's so meaningful to learn with all of you in these challenging times, sending warm wishes for the holidays. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.